0: Well, good morning. As Matt said, I was at um, Miracle Hill this morning, and so Chris and Steve and Ben are all sick this morning, and so, um, yeah, I'll be sharing with you what we preach to them, you know, so maybe a little bit of a different flavor, um, but it's the Word of God. So, in thinking of that, I was thinking of 1 Thessalonians, I love this, where Paul, he thanks the Lord um, that the Thessalonians, they received the word of God, which they heard from him, and um, they believed it as the word of God. And he says, which also performs its work in you who believe. You know, the word performs work in us, even when we don't know it is, um, and when we do know it is. Um, But that's really, I mean, our, our hope when we come and listen to the word every, you know, Sunday. It's not doesn't matter who's speaking the word, right? It's God that works through his word. It's the word that rebukes and reproves and does all those things. So I will pray and then we'll get into it. So Father, we thank you, Lord. Um, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken. Um, you've, that you've not left us, Lord. You've given us your spirit. You know how weak and frail and needy that we all are, Lord. Um, we need you to work um, in us, Lord. We want to hear from you. We want to be transformed and changed, Lord, um, more and more t- into your Son. So we, um, we come together, Lord, and uh, we just ask you to work in us to that end. We love you. Amen. So we've been in Mark in, um, on Sunday mornings there, just kind of working through verse by verse. And where we're at this morning is Mark 10:17. And I'll pick it up. I'm going to read the whole kind of passage, and then we'll just start through it. It's so Mark 10:17. As he was setting out on a journey, that is Jesus, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, "Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus said to him, "Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone." You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. All right, so typical of Jesus' ministry, he is on the move. Um, He didn't stay long in any one location. He came to preach and teach to many people in different towns and cities. So here he's fixing to leave to go on a journey, and a man runs up, To him and kneels before him. We don't know the man's name. The account's included in three of the four Gospels, and in those accounts, we learn that he's a young man who is a ruler. That could mean he ruled over a synagogue, but the Gospel writers really don't go into much detail there. All we really need to know is that he was a man of status and wealth. They all record he had many possessions and that he owned much property. So that's the background on the man, and here he is, he's running up to Jesus kneeling down and asking him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And at first glance, it appears he's on the right track, so to speak. You know, he's kneeling before Jesus, he's calling him good, right? He's asking about eternal life. Those are all good things. But the way he even phrases the question, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know, it sounds like something's kind of off if you've, you know, read the Gospels, right? So I'm going to give a description briefly of some people that have come to Jesus at this point um, in the first ten chapters of Mark and see if you can kind of pick up on the contrast between how they're coming and how this man's coming. Right? So early on we had the leper that came and he asked Jesus, he said, "You know, he's asking me to make clean. He says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was moved with compassion and he healed him. The paralytic that was carried by his friends dropped through the roof Right? Jesus forgave his sins and healed him. He Jairus. he was a synagogue official who had a daughter that was possessed by a demon. Or no, she was the daughter that died, right? He came and he implored Jesus earnestly to lay hands on his daughter. Jesus came and he raised her from the dead. There was the woman who was bleeding for twelve years, right? She squeezed through a crowd just to touch the cloak. She was healed. There was a foreigner who reasoned back and forth with Jesus for her daughter to be delivered from a demon. Right, not taking no for an answer. And then you had a deaf man who was nearly mute, and he had to be brought to Jesus by others, and Jesus healed him. So that's not all of them, but sufficient for you to see the difference between coming and asking, "What shall I do to inherit eternal life?" And everyone else, you could pretty much sum up, and they come and they plead, "Please help me!" Right? If you wanted to sum that up, that would be it. They're looking for help. They're in need. They had problems that only Jesus could heal. This man's not really coming with that same posture, right? And that's ultimately because he thinks he's good. You know, we see it in Jesus' response. He says, Why do you call me good? You know, the man calling Jesus good. No one's good except God alone. So some people think that the man in calling Jesus good is his recognition that Jesus is God and he's honoring him with the title of good, right? Or others can think that he's somehow saying he's not God by his response, that is Jesus. But both of those miss really what's happening here. The man has a perception that there are good people in the world. His assessment of things is that you have good people and you have bad people. And Jesus' assessment of things is you have God who is good, and then you have everyone else. Jesus immediately puts the standard of goodness as God Himself. He is good. You're not good. And I'm not good in myself. Right? You know, and that's. Have you come to the point in your life where you agree with God's perspective on who you are? No. And the reality is it's utter folly to hold on to a perception of goodness or righteousness in yourself, right? It's foolish. Like, why would you do that? You know? And why is it foolish? Well, mainly because Christ came to save sinners, right? He came for the unrighteous. He didn't come for good people. You know, when look at those brief examples earlier, over and over you have people coming, needing help. God's in the business of saving people who are helpless, who have no other hope. He delights in that. God is pleased to save those who call on him because they are helpless and broken. You know, Psalm 51, after David committed murder, in adultery, right, slept with the woman and then murdered her husband by sending him to the front lines of a war. He said to God, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You know, and that's, it's remarkable, right? It's amazing that God's not after a perfect heart. He's not after a good heart. It's not sinlessness that God is after in us, right? He's looking for you to have contrition, regret, or sorrow over your sin. So don't try to hold on to a sense of goodness before God, right? Be honest. Be honest before the Lord, right? It says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you come to God with pride, if you come touting your own goodness, your own righteousness, then you're only going to be met with resistance from him. You'll never be near to him. But if you humble yourself, see things from his perspective, then you'll be met with grace. Grace, that unmerited favor, that favor that can't be earned, it comes with power to transform you, transform your life. It's only available to those who humble themselves, who aren't coming claiming their own goodness. So, back to the verse. Jesus says that only God's good, and then he points the man to the commandments. Right? He quotes five out of the ten commandments, and he also says do not defraud. All right? So why does Jesus point the man to the law, right? What does the law do, and why was the law given? So one of the main reasons and functions of the law, as many of y'all know, right, is to bring about the knowledge of sin. When you look at the law, it produces in you a knowledge of your own sinfulness. In Romans it says, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Jesus wasn't sending the man to do the law so that he could be justified and inherit eternal life, right? That's not Jesus's point in quoting the law to the man, right? No flesh, no man is going to be righteous before God that way. That wasn't the purpose of the law. Jesus wanted the man to see his condition before God. You know, it's imperative that you know who you are before God, says elsewhere that the law came so that transgression would increase. Transgression being another word for sin, a little bit of a different nuance. Um, but the idea is that the law comes in order that sin becomes more evident. It's not that the law produces sin, right? It's not that there wasn't sin before the law. It's that the law comes so you would know that you're a sinner. There's a picture in um, Pilgrim's Progress, right? It's an allegory. Y'all are probably a lot more familiar with it right? Matt loves it. And, um, but all the story, the characters, and events are symbols of things in the Christian life, right? And uh, there's that one scene with the room with a very fine layer of dust, and it's on everything, right? You can't really see it, but it's all there. It's dust, and it's so fine. And um, a man comes in named Moses, and he starts with a broom, right, trying to sweep everything up. And what happens? The dust just gets kicked up everywhere, It turns into a huge dust cloud and you see just how dirty the room really is, right? The broom is unable to clean the room. All it can do is push it around and show you how dirty everything really is. That room is the human heart. That's what it is to represent, right? Moses comes in with a broom, which is the law. The law can't do anything about the dirt in your heart. It has no power to cleanse the heart from sin, right? That's why it's called the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation, right? All it can do is come and condemn you. All it can do is come and say you deserve to die, right? Not that the law is to blame for our condition, but all the law can do is to show us that we're lawbreakers. And you know, so many people have a wrong perception of Christianity because they don't understand that. They think being a Christian is, hey, be a good person, obey the Ten Commandments, and God's going to send you to heaven when you die, right? That's not what Christianity is. And, um, you know, I spoke to a man earlier this week. Uh, We got on the topic of death, right? And uh, I asked him what was going to happen when he died. And his response was, well, God will judge me, and I hope I'm a good enough person to go to heaven, right? His name was Bino. And so uh, I'm thinking in my head, like, he says this, and I'm like, all right, well, hey, now... Got to talk to this man about Jesus now, right? Like, got to, here we go. You know, got to kind of cross that line there. And so I say to him, I say, hey, you know, have you, you know, he'd been down here now. He was foreign, but he'd been down here for about 10 years. I'm like, so you've probably heard of Jesus, right, by now. Do you know why Christians believe in Jesus? And he's like, oh, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, you know. What he said was completely antithetical to everything Christianity says, right? I mean, Jesus just said, No one's good except God alone. The man's like, I'm going to die. I hope I'm good. And I'm going to go to heaven, right? Many claim the name of Christ and rely on themselves for their standing before God, they rely on their own performance. They rely on their own works, their own, everything when they stack up their whole life. Even, you can do it even as a, it can be even more subtle than you think. It can be, you know, your prayers, your reading, you know, um, all your religious activities. You know, that was the man, the, the, the Pharisee and the publican, right? He fasted, he tithed, he had all those things. Those start to be the basis for your acceptance before God. We can't allow that to happen. You can't allow that to happen, all right? Just keep going. How does the man respond to Jesus, all Right. Jesus quotes the law to him, tells him, hey, nobody's good except God. And the man says, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up, you know? He didn't get it. He missed the point. His response wasn't, Well, teacher, I tried, but I cannot keep the law. I need help. The law itself tells of needing a sacrifice before God. It tells me that I need a sacrifice, one to take away my sins, a lamb that has no blemish on it. Do you know where I can find a lamb that will take my sin away forever? And what's his response? Didn't even register with him when Jesus told him that none are good. And you know, it's interesting. Jesus could have just kept pressing him there to say, Hey, you're a lawbreaker. Let me show you why you've broken the law, right? But he doesn't. It's almost like it's here as an example. You see what happens when Jesus is set forth before someone that doesn't understand their condition before God. I presume a lot more of you are Christian in here than at my earlier audience, but um, you need to understand this if you're Christian. I, I presume you want to bear witness to his name, Right? You're wanting to proclaim the gospel. You want to see sinners born again. You want to see others come to Christ, right? Your heartbeat is that others would come to know this Savior whom you adore, this great treasure you found. You know, and how do you do that? Well, here's the master evangelist. He's at work, you know? Study him, imitate him. He sends the man to the law to expose his need for a Savior, you know? And it's not just so the man will recognize that, wow, I'm not good, you know, like, There's not any merit in that. It's to drive him to Christ, right? You'll only flee to the Lord and cling to him when you see your condition. So how does Jesus respond to him? He doesn't press him, right? In one sense, he doesn't press him uh, to show that he's a lawbreaker. But he does turn up the heat. You know, says he looks at him. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. And said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. You know, isn't it good to know that Jesus loves sinners? Right? It's almost as if Jesus was kind of walking down the road here. You know, he's set out on his journey. The man comes up, falls on his knees. The conversation begins, but Jesus doesn't even really look at him, it almost seems like. You know? But now with this latest response of keeping all of these things, Jesus turns towards him and looks at him, right? Gazes intently at the man now. And that's what's amazing about the response. You have here Jesus, he's looking at a sinner who doesn't know his own condition before God, right? So this man, he doesn't know, as Jesus says in Revelation, that he's wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You know, just what a statement, you know, Jesus said those words to his church that had begun to say, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. But my point is, the man truly is wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And even though he doesn't know it, Jesus looks at him and what? He says he felt a love for him. You know, it is a remarkable thing that Jesus loves sinners. It's remarkable. You hear it so often that it loses its luster, you know? It loses the wonder, the glory of it all. But it is the most wonderful news in history, and it's not even close, you know? There isn't anything more wonderful to hear than God loves you, you know? And for the Christian, the man whose eyes have been opened to his own condition, it almost seems unbelievable most of the time, you know? Most of the time, your own heart's condemning you because you've seen your own condition, Right? Your eyes have been opened. You've seen God is good. You know you're not, and you know what you deserve. And you have a difficult time actually believing that God loves you. You know, and that's why it's imperative that you hear the gospel every day. You know, every day you got to be reminding yourself of these truths. You need to be bringing before your eyes and your heart that God loves you and He sent His Son for you. And that's why the writer of Hebrews exhorts the Christians to encourage one another day after day. Right. You need it every day. I need it every day. We need to be reminded of who we are and who God is. Some days you're able to be the encourager, and other days you need the encouragement. But we need it every day. We need one another. So Jesus looks at and feels a love for this man, and he leads him to say, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor. One thing you lack. It's as if Jesus is telling him, okay, well, hey, you only got to do one more thing. It's no big deal. It's just, it's one thing. You're right there. This is it. And then he says, sell everything you own. Not even just give your money away, you know? No, it's you sell everything you own, all you possess, and you give it to the poor. You'll get treasure in heaven for it, and then come follow me. Do that, and hey, you'll have eternal life. The one thing you lack is everything. Jesus wants it all. He wants everything you have. And not for himself. Jesus wasn't asking the man to sell and give the money to Jesus, right? Jesus didn't want the man's money. He doesn't want your stuff. Jesus is replacing the man's wealth, though. The man's wealth was the most important thing in his life, and Jesus commanded that he give it up and follow him. If there is anything in your life that you value more than Jesus, you need to give it up. Now, no excuses. There's no reasoning out of it. He gives no qualifications here. You know, He goes on to talk about giving up mothers and children and farms. Right? You know, I mean, I I have a three-year-old son. Jesus doesn't want me to sell my house and leave my son on the side of the road, right? That's not what he's saying. We understand that. But he is saying that he must be more important to me than my three-year-old son. He is definitely saying that. If you love your children more than you love Jesus, then you aren't fit for the kingdom. You aren't qualified for heaven. You are not worthy to be his disciple, he says. That's difficult to hear, you know? But he said the way is difficult, and there are a few who find it. It's not an easy path that he's setting forth before people, right? Right? Wasn't an easy thing he set before this man. You know, sell everything you own and go give it to the poor. You know, Jesus himself, he is the way and he is the path. You know, what I mean is, he ends here, he says, and come follow me. And you can sum up the entirety of Christianity with that right there. Come follow me. What is it to be a Christian? It's to come to Jesus and follow him. You know, What's eternal life? Well, it's, it's in Jesus. It's that relationship of him being your master, your Lord and Savior and God, and you follow him. That is eternal life. It's in that relationship that you will know him and enjoy him forever and ever. So question, what is it to follow Jesus? You know, for this man, it was simple, like, Simple in the sense of Jesus was heading out on a journey. So physically for him it was, hey, go sell your stuff, right? Leave it all to the poor and then come and physically walk and follow me, right? But what does it mean for us now when Jesus is ruling in heaven and we're here on earth? You know, you can't likely like go out and go down to the corner and find Jesus and start following him and walk wherever he goes, right? Like that's not, that's not what he means, right? You know, a lot of times, people think that it's believing a certain set of facts about Jesus. You know, you say, Are you a Christian? Well, yeah, I believe, you know, he was born of a virgin, he died for my sins, I believe he's God. You know, and those are all true and right things to believe. But that's not what being a Christian is. You know, it's following him. It means he replaces anything and everything else in our life as the central and most important person in our life. He doesn't become merely one of many different things about you. You know, It's not I'm a family man, a construction worker. Y'all know I'm not a construction worker. A husband and also a Christian. Like it's one of a few different things about me. But Rather it becomes the premier thing that everything else in your life falls under. It's the defining thing of your life. I'm a follower of Jesus, and that shapes how I am as a husband, a worker, a father, a friend. Everything you have is shaped under that umbrella that, hey, I'm following Jesus. I look to him for all my instruction. I trust him to lead me and guide me. He's everything. That's what he wanted from this man. He wanted this man to give up everything and trade it all for him. And the man wouldn't do it. It says, the man was saddened, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. He was sad and he was grieved, but not enough to give away his wealth. You know? And as a side point, don't think you've done someone a disservice because you tell them hard things about Jesus and they walk away upset. You know? Jesus loved this man. And that love led him to speak to him difficult things. And at the end of the interaction, the man was grieved and didn't follow him. Right. Not everyone's going to believe. Most won't. You can't be moved from the truth. You can't water it down. It's the only hope that people have, right? That's not love if you do that. You're just hating them. Tell them everything up front. Give them the whole thing. This is, hey, this is the cost, you know? You tell them it's worth it, but this is it. So why didn't the man give it up? You know? Because he owned a lot of prop- property. He was wealthy. His wealth was what hindered him. It prevented him from entering eternal life because he wouldn't let it go. Man. I mean, it's just striking to say that, you know. His wealth prevented him from entering eternal life because he wouldn't give it up. You know, it's 2,000 years later. He could have traded that wealth for treasure in heaven that would not be destroyed right now, still wouldn't be wearing out, right? Everything he held on to, it wore out in, what, 20 years, 50 years? So is wealth. Jesus says it flat out. He, he points out wealth is the issue here. Um, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. So what is it about wealth that makes it difficult? Right? That should be our question. You know? Why is why is it hard for a rich man? Why is wealthy what's what's wealth got to do, you know? So wealth is a hindrance to entering eternal life for the kingdom of God or to be saved, right? Those are all synonyms, synonyms. It's a hindrance because it blinds you to your need. The rich person does not see their condition before God, and therefore they do not see their need of him. And if you do not see your need of God, you will not be saved. This is why they use screens now, so they don't have to flip the pages there. So at the beginning of the man and Jesus' interaction, we saw that Jesus was trying to show the man his true condition before God. You know, he wanted the man's eyes to be open to see that he needed God. Jesus One of the man's eyes to be open to the fact that he was a sinner who had broken the law and that he wasn't actually good, so that he would come and plead for mercy and grace from God. You know, I didn't read it, but before our passage here, you had Jesus blessing some children and he instructed the disciples that unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child, you will not enter it, right? That same passage is recorded before this interaction in each of the Gospels, right? And I think they're actually linked, you know? Um, I think it's intentional. You know, what is the universal characteristic of all children? You you can probably say a lot of things, but they're needy. That's for sure. You know, I have three children, six and under. My son's three, and he cannot get his shoes on by himself. You know? If they were left to themselves, they would have 0% chance of survival. Right? 0%. You know, think of when a child is born. How needy are they? They can't even roll over by themselves much less eat or walk or do anything, right? They are completely dependent upon others, right? Jesus wants you to realize that unless you have that same mindset towards God, that you are completely dependent upon him and helpless unless he helps you, then you have no chance of entering the kingdom. And wealth is such a hindrance to feeling that need. You know, the church at Laodicea, they had begun to say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. They'd arrived. they'd begun to feel they didn't need anything from God. When Paul writes to Timothy about those who are rich in this present world, right? so there were rich Christians, he instructed them not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So the rich Christians were told, hey, don't fix your hope on wealth, but on God, right? Don't look to wealth to supply all your needs. Look to God. He is your hope. It says the disciples were amazed at Jesus saying it was hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom. You know, I think back then, and it's still like this today, you know, wealth is often seen as a blessing from God, right? Right? I'm not saying it not, or it can't be. But so many people measure their favor with the Lord, with how wealthy they are, right? And that's, you don't want to fall into that trap, right? This man, so he was a ruler. He's possibly over a synagogue. He's religious in some sense, right? He's very wealthy. I imagine the disciples and everyone around said, man, this guy's really favored to God, you know? God has really blessed this man, you know? So for Jesus to come and say, Hey, it's hard for this man to enter the kingdom. Well, that's a shock to their way of thinking. You know? A couple of years ago, I, I talked to my cousin about where he was at with the Lord. Right? I hadn't seen him in, like, I don't know, a year or six months, you know? And, like, yes, you say, hey, how are you doing in the Lord? I mean, tell me about things. You want to know how they are, right? How they're really doing. And he said a sense that God had blessed him with so much work. You know, he'd owned his own business now, and he was doing great, right? God was so favorable by giving him all this work. He was able to make more money, right? Yet with all the work, he didn't have time for the things of the Lord. You know, he didn't have time to gather with the people of God or seek the things of the kingdom. You know? Does that sound like God's blessing in his life? You know, God's favor? I mean, God's favor is not leading you further from him, right? If something's come in your life and it's taking you further away from God, That's not God's favor and blessing on your life there, right? Jesus sees their amazement and now says, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So Jesus now brings them to the conclusion that salvation is impossible apart from God. While from our perspective the rich are at a disadvantage because of the hindrance that wealth poses in one entry of the kingdom, the reality is that salvation of any man is a miracle of God, you know? We're all prone to give our hearts to other things, and without God working, we will value anything and everything above Jesus, right? I spoke to a, a sister earlier this week. She was born again later in life, and um, yeah, just a few years ago. And so for the previous 30 or 40 years before that, right, her life revolved around pool, billiards, right? Right? And, um, I mean, she played in all kinds of leagues. She went to tournaments all over, won all kinds of championships, right? This is what she did. She did it for a living. I mean, she taught people pool, right? Her whole life revolved around it for decades, you know? Center of her life. And now for some, I mean, pool is no big deal, right? It's just a game. You're just taking a stick and you're hitting balls, right? But it was the center of her life, right? So when she was born again, it didn't take long for Jesus to just put his finger on that, you know? She gladly gave it up. All of it. She got rid of the table, all the sticks, everything. She had pull the table in her living room. Got rid of it. Doesn't play now. And not begrudgingly, right? It's not like she really wants to play, right? She gave it all up with joy, you know? I mean, what happened? Well, God worked in her heart. It was impossible for her to make that change. She would have never made that change in her life, you know? But God came and He replaced everything that was important and lovely in her life. He replaced it with Jesus, you know? And she's willingly made that change. So, God is strong to replace anything in your life that has taken His place. That's all I have this morning. I'll pray and then we'll be dismissed. So. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you love sinners, that you're merciful to us. Um, Pray, Lord, that you would, uh, you would continue to teach us, teach all of us, Lord, of your value and your worth, that we would esteem you properly, Lord, that the world, we would not set our hope or fix our eyes on things that are fading away, Lord, but we would set them on you in heaven. You'd have all our affection, Lord. Um, we need you for this, Lord. Please take our hearts and seal it, as that hymn says. We love you. Amen.